you brought a Bible with you this morning, how about if you open it up to Acts chapter 21, and maybe at the same time, put your finger in uh, Philippians chapter 2. We're going to kind of anchor off both of those this morning. So Acts chapter 2 and Philippians, um, Philippians chapter 2 and Acts 21, and we'll be on the same page together. Um, one detail before we jump into the text, and then I want to pray with you, is uh, your giving envelopes. When you, when you use the envelopes that are in the pew rack around you, this is related to what we talked about with the property. You'll see a slide up on the screen. The giving envelopes are going to change. If you've been used to using those ones that are in the, the racks, you notice on the uh, building fund down below in the third line, it says moving forward. That's what we're calling this building program, moving forward. So the ones that are in front of you called building improvement fund, it's going to change in about a week and a half. All right. Just a heads up on that. How about if we pray, and then I want to enter into this uh, passage with you. God, I thank you for the hearts in this room. You know us so intimately well. You know what kind of baggage we're carrying. You know what kind of joy we're carrying. You know everything about us. You know us better than we know ourselves. You tell us you know us so well you have the hairs on our head numbered. So there isn't anything that escapes your attention about our personality, about our victories, and about our failures. I pray for each man and woman, every student, every child in this auditorium, God, that in this moment you would see us at the place where we need to be convicted by your word, where you need to push buttons in our life where you need to remind us of who we are in Christ. All that I'm asking for, Father, can't be done just by me asking for it. It can be done through the power of the Holy Spirit in response to that. So that's what we ask for, is that your Holy Spirit would guide us and teach us and lead us. Cause us to see things we cannot see on our own. Speak in ways that only you can. We pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Christmas is a reality check for me. I'm guessing it is for you, and it, it may be differently for you than it is for me, but here's my reality check. Every time I think of Christmas, and I, I dwell on it a lot, obviously we're a week and a half out, I begin thinking of the condescension of God becoming man. And by that, I'm, the word condescension, I don't mean in a negative term. I don't mean as though condescending when somebody speaks poorly of someone else. The condescension of God speaks specifically of He's God, we're man, so anything that God does to lower himself is a condescension. So when we think of God the Son becoming Jesus the man, it's a condescending. It's God coming down to our level, right? So it's, it's incredibly humbling. The humility of God to put on flesh, to become one of us, I validate that knowledge with passages like Philippians 2, where I asked you to place your finger. What you'll see up on the screen is an example of that, Philippians 2, 5. It says this, have this attitude in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. One of the more theologically profound verses in the Bible, would you not say? I mean, like, wow, take a breath. 
God becomes man. Put that verse on your Christmas card, church, right? I'd never seen a Christmas card with that passage, but that's what Christmas is. God condescending to become man, emptying himself, taking on the form of a servant, dying on a cross. So we're told in Philippians 2, verse 5, have this attitude in yourself that we would wear humility in the way that Jesus does. Have this attitude means to think and act like Jesus. If you pulled your notes out of the bulletin along with all those other things that were in there, you, you see this Greek word phroneo. Phroneo literally means to, to have not just the mind of, but to dwell on it in such a way that you savor it. Now, I get savoring. I, I savor a good steak on the grill. I can savor that, right? And I can savor a sunset. But savor the thought of humility? Savor the thought that God condescended and that we're supposed to be of that same way that we would lower ourselves? How do you do that? It's not hard to check ourselves whether or not we have the attitude of Jesus, but it's so much easier to say than it is to do. How do you do that? Well, we're going to ask ourselves that along the way as we go into Acts 21 by looking at Paul and see whether or not he's wearing Jesus, wearing Jesus well. Does he have the attitude? Is he phroneo like Jesus? Is he thinking the way that Jesus thinks? So we're going to examine him because here's why. 2015, it's really hard to relate to God the Son becoming Jesus the man because none of us have been God, but we can relate to Paul. Paul, who's got frailties and victories just like us, we can understand that. So Paul is this guy, especially if you're not familiar with him, hear this, he's just full of learning and wisdom. He graduated from like the Harvard of his day trained into the house of Gamaliel. He's bold in the face of severe opposition. He's inspiring. People want to look to him. He performs the signs of apostles, meaning there's miracles that are being worked through Paul. And his love for people, it is without equal. He's willing to travel throughout the entire Roman Empire to find people who need to meet Jesus. But all of those characterizations of Paul would be incomplete if you stopped short of including humility. Matter of fact, the New Testament is really clear that Paul was gentle, gracious, and very, very humble, meaning he looks like his king. He puts on the image of Jesus. So let's go into Acts 21, verse 15, because in this final passion or portion of Acts, we're gonna find all these major themes emerging right here, and Dr. Luke finds it especially important. And here's how you know. You, you can always detect this when you're going through Scripture. Up till now, Luke has been jumping by leaps and bounds, covering a span of 23 years, and taking years at a huge portion. But now he hits the brakes, and we start seeing things measured in hours and in days. Go with me into verse 15. It says this, After these days we got ready and started on our way up to Jerusalem. Some of the disciples from Caesarea also came with us, taking us to Manasson of Cyprus, a disciple of long standing with whom we were to lodge. And so it's 64 miles from Caesarea to Jerusalem. And it says they're going up. Well, people always spoke of going up to Jerusalem because it was built on a plateau. So they're leaving Caesarea, going 64 miles southeast. It's going to be a three-day journey, and the city is going to be crowded when they get there because a festival is taking place. It's the festival of Pentecost. 
So there's lots of people in town. So Paul and his team, they're moving into the house of Manasson, this, this guy who's a Christian, who's also a Jew, who's from Gentile territory. So he's got all three of those things going on. So the Gentiles that are traveling with Paul, meaning the Greeks, they're gonna be really comfortable in this guy's house because he understands their culture. He knows what they're comfortable with. And this is a big group. We talked about this last week. We got Dr. Luke, we've got Paul, you got Timothy, Titus, Tychicus, all the representatives from the churches in Galatia and in Turkey. And then you add to it this group from Caesarea that are joining them. Go to verse 17. After we arrived in Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly. And the following day, Paul went, with us, went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. So you've got the official reception going on. The church, the mother church in Jerusalem is receiving all of these believers who are coming into their presence. And you see a really significant change taking place here. A significant change in leadership. James that's mentioned here is the half-brother of Jesus. Up till now, the church has been led by the apostles, Peter, John, James, James the brother of John, who was killed back in chapter 12. But now we find presiding over the church in Jerusalem, James the half-brother of Jesus, and he's the pastor. And you find elders present. Why is that a significant change? Because up till now, the apostles have led the church. And the apostles are now out doing mission work. Some of them have died. And leadership responsibilities have been handed over to the elders, and elder leadership continues to 2015. This is the beginning of it. You see it written about in Titus and James, but here's the beginning. You see elders leading the church. And given the size of this church, which is enormous, there must be many elders. As you're about to see, this church has tens of thousands of people in it. Go with me into the next verse, 19. After he had greeted them, he began to relate one by one the things which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they began glorifying God. Stop right there. Now, certainly they're thrilled with the fact that Paul has brought all this money with them from the churches in the region of Galatia because there's people that are starving in Jerusalem. So they're certainly thrilled about that, but do you notice what's really significant? They're overjoyed at the even greater evidence of God's work with these Gentile converts that are right there with Paul. The evidence of what Jesus is doing in the Roman Empire stands right in front of them. They've got eyewitnesses now. They're seeing these individuals. So Paul, in verse 19, begins to relate one by one the things that God has done. Now, this is really significant to me, and I hope it is to you. There's nothing vague, first of all, about what Paul's relating here. He's giving specific incidents. But do you notice there's no boasting? Look at the things I've done. Look at the things that were accomplished through me. No, the things that were accomplished through God all the things that God had done according to verse 19. See, Paul just sees himself as an instrument, and this is your first indicator of how he wears humility. Look with me on the screen at Romans 15, 18. It says this, I will not presume to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me. That's a godly Christ follower, people. A godly Christ follower always exalts Jesus and not himself. That's why 2 Corinthians says, he who boasts, let him boast in the Lord. Because it's God who's doing the work, right? Now, a God-centered report does something. A God-centered report causes people to have a response, and they're not responding by saying, 
go Paul, way to go, well done. No, look, look at the response. They began glorifying God. See, that's the way heaven responds when people step into the kingdom, and you're seeing it reflected in the church on earth. Quote from Jesus himself. Look with me on the screen. Luke 15, 10. I tell you there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Meaning there's a party in heaven when people come to Christ. Well, it's natural that there would be a response on earth in the church. That's why they're glorifying God. They've got all these new believers right there in front of them. Now, Paul's bringing believers as evidence of what's going on in the church, and so the elders in the church are gonna point to Paul saying, you know what, there's also thousands of believers here in Jerusalem. Let's go to the rest of verse 20, part B. It says this, and they said to him, you see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed, and they are all zealous for the law. And they have been told about you that you are teaching all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children nor to walk according to the customs. In verse 20, when he uses the phrase, you see, it's one word in the Greek language. It's the word thoreo. It means perceive or discern. It's in your notes also. You won't see it on the screen, but it means to really contemplate Paul. Paul, stop a minute. You've got all the Gentiles who are Christians There are tens of thousands of Jews who are believers, who are following Jesus now. Really consider that, Paul, what we're talking about. And they're true believers. Uh, First of all, this is an example to me of the power of the gospel. It's been 23 years since Jesus died. 33 AD to 56 AD, and now we see the church has really taken root. Tens of thousands of Jews in the city where Jesus was crucified are now professing Jesus as their savior. Is that a powerful gospel or what? That's the power of the gospel. You're seeing it right there in the text. And they're believers who are, we're told, verse 20, zealous for the law. Now what's going on here? Well, they're following Jesus, but they still observe the feast and the regulations and the rituals and the vows and the dietary restrictions. Now, that doesn't mean they're not true believers. We're told they have believed, mean true saving faith. That should tell us right away, you can become a believer without a full understanding of all of the theological implications. These people are a little bit messed up. They're, they're thinking they still gotta hold on to the old things in order to fellowship with Christ. So we've got the elders who have this joy in verse 20 and 21, whose joy is mixed with concern. They got a serious problem on their hands. A real problem has developed. The leadership is immediately telling Paul when he comes through the door, hey Paul, nobody here likes you. How'd you like to hear that? All right, you've been gone for years. You've collected all this money. You bring it through the door and you bring the examples of the Christian believers with you. And then the next thing you hear is, Paul, you know, you're a hated guy here because they're talking about you in this town, that you're pushing people away from Moses. So what do they do with that? See, the elders are in a bind. On one hand, they are Paul's greatest cheerleaders. They're really encouraging him. Yet Paul is being discredited among the general population. He's being discredited to such a degree that even the new believers are thinking Paul's a bad guy. So let's hit the pause button for just a minute. Why are these new believers who are Jews living in Jerusalem still hanging on to the rituals of the old covenant? 
I've come up with a couple reasons. I think they're in your notes, but here's just a brief synopsis of it. These new believers have come to faith in Jesus and it has sharpened their understanding of God. Because when you come into relationship with Jesus, you really understand who God is. And so all of the symbolism, all of the patterns of the Old Testament mean a great deal more to them now that they're believers. Here's an example for you. Passover. Can you imagine their first Passover experience thinking back of how they used to worship it and then Passover as a believer? Thinking of the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world and the newborn lamb that was sacrificed at Passover, the blood so that the spirit of God would pass over the house. All of that symbolism combines together. I can understand why they're still hanging on to some of that. And you'll find nowhere in the New Testament are any New Testament Jewish believers criticized for hanging on to the rituals. They're not criticized in any way. It's just part of their heritage. But here's the second reason. Old habits are really hard to change, aren't they? They just are. I mean, we're all living witnesses of that. It's really hard to change past lifestyles. So you see that in their life. But gratefully, our God is compassionate and long-suffering beyond our comprehension. Amen, church? I mean, he is long-suffering. And he needs to be with guys like me and you. Don't look at me so condescending, okay? (laughs) All of us. God needs to be patient with us. So here's the deal. He knows the future. He can see the future. God knows 56 AD, it's only gonna be 13 years before Rome sweeps in and wipes out Jerusalem and obliterates the temple. And all this Jewish influence over the church, it's just gonna fade away. And the Gentiles, us, those who are non-Jews, they raise up to become the predominant force in the church. One day, God's gonna send a letter to the Jews to help them to understand that. It's called the book of Hebrews. It's in your Bible. That's God's letter to the Hebrews to help them understand this connection between the Old Testament and the New Testament. So let's jump back into the story. Here's a specific problem. These new believers who are zealous for the law, they're told that Paul is teaching people to forsake Moses. So we got a really, really large group, tens of thousands of Christians. These Jewish believers who are ripe targets for the enemies of the gospel. In the Bible, they're known as the Judaizers. And these people have followed Paul and they have dogged him throughout Galatia. And we're gonna find out that they're also in Jerusalem. Here's what they deny. They deny what Jesus did on the cross was enough. They deny that salvation is by grace. They insist that people have to keep the law in order to be saved. They're they're called legalists. So these new believers have been told something. They've been told that Paul is teaching things. Now this phrase, they have been told in verse 21, if you grew up in a Catholic church or perhaps you grew up in a a Lutheran background, you're very familiar with the word catechism. The word catechizo is, is right there. They have been told. Catechism means learning by repetition. So that means that these Judaizers over and over and over and over and over and, you getting tired of it yet, right? Okay, and over again have been drilling it into the heads of these new believers. Here's their goal. They want to destroy Paul's credibility in the Christian community. They want to take him out. So these are really serious charges. It strikes right at the heart of the identity of the Jewish people. 
They're saying that he speaks against the law, the Torah, and he speaks against circumcision. That's, that's the badge of identity for a Jewish person in that day and age. Now, already what Paul is doing among the Gentiles is not popular, it's not well received. Now these allegations against him present a really serious threat to bringing people into relationship with Jesus. The accusations are completely false. There's nowhere in the New Testament you're gonna find that Paul told people to abandon their Jewish heritage. He just didn't do it. Paul understands what you and I understand today. In Jesus, he transcends everything. There's no Jew, there's no Greek, there's no male, no female. Look look with me on the screen. It says this, Galatians 3.28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free man, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So now add to those issues this geopolitical environment that's going on in Rome. Everything I just told you compounded by what you'll see, I'll explain it through a quote. Dr. Polhill observes it this way. He said this, this is a time of intense Jewish nationalism and political unrest. One insurrection after another rose to challenge the Roman overlords and Felix brutally suppressed them all. This only increased the Jewish hatred for Rome and inflamed anti-Gentile sentiments. What did Paul just drag into Jerusalem? All the Gentiles, right? So you add this geopolitical environment into all these legalistic issues and you can understand why these people are going after Paul. So the elders are left with this huge question. Verse 22, what do we do? What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. False or not, the accusations present present this really serious threat. Paul's presence can hardly be kept a secret. How are they gonna hide Paul? So here's their proposed solution, verse 23. Uh, It's a long chunk, but let's just push through it. Therefore, do this that we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take them and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. And all will know that there is nothing to the things which they have been told about you, but that you yourself also walk orderly, keeping the law. But concerning the Gentiles who have believed, we wrote, having decided that they should abstain from meat sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what is strangled and from fornication. Here's what's going on if I lost you on that. There's this symbolic action that they're asking Paul to participate in. Paul, we want you to demonstrate that you still embrace your Jewish heritage. So we're asking for an act of concession on your part, Paul. A self-sacrificial act of humility, Paul. On your part, we know you've done all these things, but will you do this that we tell you? Verse 23 speaks specifically of these four members who are under a vow. What are they talking about? It's a Nazarite vow. If you're familiar at all with the Old Testament, you're immediately thinking of Samson. Now, under a Nazarite vow, here's the issue. Individuals would take a vow, it's it's like a huge spiritual devotion to God, and it was a minimum of 30 days, many of them went much, much longer than that, in which the individuals would grow their hair out, and they would abstain from any alcoholic beverages whatsoever. I'm talking about even the products or the byproducts of grapes, so they couldn't even eat raisins. And they had to avoid dead things, like dead animals and dead bodies. And you're thinking, well, that's not so hard, but what if your aunt dies in the middle of your vow? And you gotta go to the funeral. Well, then you gotta start all over again. 
So this vow is a really big deal, and they took it very, very seriously, and they've got four Christians who are still living under the ritualism, and they've taken a vow, and they're separating themselves unto God. It's, it's like spiritual fasting, owning at, at a really high level of devotion to God. So as their sponsor, Paul's being asked to participate in the ceremony, which marks the culmination of these guys completing their vow. But before he can do that, he's got to go through this purification process first, seven days long. So they're saying, Paul, you've got to go through the vow, the ceremony, and you've got to purify yourself. So for seven days, Paul has to go through this bathing and cleansing process and submit himself to the inspection of the priests. And they're saying, let's add one more thing to it. Here's one more way you can show your devotion, Paul. How about if you pay their expenses? That's in verse 24. Here's the deal. Paying for their expenses included paying for the young male lamb, one-year-old spotless blemish, no blemish whatsoever. One-year-old female lamb, no blemish. A ram drink offerings, grain offerings, the fees associated with the cutting of the hair inside the temple. This was really, really expensive times four. So the elders of the church have said, we've come up with a plan, Paul, in which you can bring unity to the church and the name of Jesus will be glorified. So here's what we want you to do and they present everything I just explained to you. Here's what you should be noticing. Paul wants so badly to reach the culture around him, the people whom he lives among, he's absolutely willing to submit to this. He's willing to put on humility and wear it well. Hear this. This is the guy who was visited by Jesus himself, given the commission on the road to Damascus. This is the guy who raised people from the dead, God doing it through him. He's performed the works of apostles, and yet he's being told, we need you to submit to this. And what does Paul do? He displays subservient humbleness. I'm willing to do it. This is a living illustration of 1 Corinthians chapter 9. It's a little bit longer chunk, but I need to show you this so you read it through Paul's glasses. Look at it through his lenses, why he wrote things like this. 1 Corinthians 9, 19, for though I am free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all that I might win the more. And to the Jews I became as a Jew that I might win Jews to those who are under the law as under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without the law as without the law, though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those who are without the law to the weak I became weak that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men that I may by all means save some. Man, when I read that, I'm thinking, am I wearing the attitude of Christ Jesus? Am I willing to do that? Paul's got it down. You see the stages of humility going on here? I'm gonna do whatever it takes to reach those who are without Jesus. It's kind of ironic that the major reason that Paul came into Jerusalem and brought this money in the first place was to express unity between the Jews and the Gentiles who were Christians. 
Well, he's all in now. When they invite this, he's more than willing to participate. Look with me at verse 26. Then Paul took the men and the next day, purifying himself along with them, went into the temple, giving notice of the completion of the days of purification until the sacrifice was offered for each one of them. So he's got to wait seven days, right? He's going through this purification process and then offer the prescribed sacrifices, which he has to pay for, by the way. Now, the whole plan appears to be completely safe to the elders. They think, we've figured this out. Here's what we're going to present. But Paul knows in the back of his mind the risk because he was in the house seven days ago when the prophet Agabus showed up. You were there. We talked about it last week. The, the prophet shows up, takes the belt off Paul's waist, takes Paul's belt and wraps his wrist up and wraps his ankles up and said, Paul, this is what they're going to do to you. You're going to be in chains for the name of Jesus Christ. You go to Jerusalem, it's going to happen. So Paul has to wait and wait during these seven days. These actions set in motion a chain of events that absolutely culminate in the fulfillment of that prophecy. So let's stop right here for just a minute. Just hit the pause button with me and let's state the obvious. We've been working for months through the book of Acts. We started in February, right? This is 36 weeks in the book of Acts. We're at chapter 21. And when it takes that long, you, you begin to lose kind of perspective sometimes. Because we know this all points to Jesus, but sometimes it's really hard to see it in the midst of the details. Sometimes it feels like it's a history lesson, right? But we know it all points to Jesus, so here's what we begin doing. We begin looking for the characteristics of Jesus in those who are following him and comparing ourselves to them. Am I becoming conformed to the image of Christ? Do I have the attitude of Christ Jesus, my Lord, on me? Let me take you back to the anchor verse. It says this in Philippians 2. Have this attitude in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus. Verse 8, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. So just think about what you've heard Paul do so far. Paul's humility permeates the story. He's humbled before God, giving God all the glory. He's the one that's been thrown in prison. He's the one that's been chased out of the cities. He's the one through whom God raised the dead, but yet he's giving all the glory to God. So he's humble before God, and then we see him humble before other believers. These elders who have said, Paul, we need you to submit to our plan, and he does exactly what the elders ask him to do. And now you're gonna see the third step in humility. He will humbly accept the persecution. Watch how this unfolds, verse 27. When the seven days were almost over, the Jews from Asia, upon seeing him in the temple, began to stir up all the crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, men of Israel, come to our aid. This is the man who preaches to all men everywhere against our people and the law and this place. And besides, he has even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. Purification is required when you're going through this process by a measure um, every Jew understood. On day three, they had to show up at the temple, of the seven days I'm talking about. Show up at the temple, submit themselves to the priest, answer a bunch of questions. The priest would determine if they're going through the purification process correctly or not. So Paul, I'm thinking, shows up on day three 
and is probably looking over his shoulder like, is this when they're going to get me? Because he knows he's hated in Jerusalem, right? And Agabus has already given the prophecy that he's going to be arrested and put in chains. And there's this seven-day process, and if they're ever going to arrest him, it's going to be when he's in the temple. So I'm thinking on day three, he's looking over his shoulder thinking, this is possibly it. But he goes. And then we find on day seven, he appears at the temple, and that's when they spot him. These Jews from Asia, Paul's old enemies, have come to town for the feast. They're there to celebrate Pentecost too, and now Paul is on Judaism's turf. In Ephesus, the Gentiles had his back. In Corinth, the Corinthians watched out for him, but he's in their backyard now, home territory. In Ephesus, he was there for three years. They knew him well, and we find them in Jerusalem. They spot him and immediately stir up a crowd. Now, this is nothing new to Paul whatsoever. He's used to crowds being against him, right? People have seen Paul and responded. We've read about this all the way through Acts, but this is new to this crowd. Their emotions are running at full speed, but their brains are in neutral. Paul is this guy we've heard about. Let's go for it. The public accusations are extremely serious. As a matter of fact, if you study them, you'll see these are the same charges leveled against Jesus and against Stephen just before Stephen was martyred. He speaks against this place and against the law of God. We've got to take him out. And then they bring the ultimate charge. They charge him with a temple violation, which they fabricate. A, a violation of bringing a Gentile beyond the court of the Gentiles. Go with me to the next verse, verse 29. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, in the city with him, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. I don't know the last time that you looked at an image of the temple itself and, and the construction of it, so I wanted you to see this image on the screen. It will get a framework in your mind of where Paul is at in this moment. When you look at an a image of the temple, you understand it is a massive place, covered many acres inside the city of Jerusalem. It's like the town square. So the court of the Gentiles is this area that's made up with this wall surrounding it, and it would literally hold thousands upon thousands of people. But Paul has gone beyond the court of the Gentiles. He's had to go into what's known as the court of women, which is the inner walls, which is in the center of the screen. That's where the purification process starts where Paul has submitted himself. So he's crossed over into the area that they consider off limits to Gentiles. So the next image you're about to see on the screen, it's a no trespassing sign. Uh, assuming that you don't read Greek, I'm just gonna tell you what it says. You cross this line and we will kill you. Doesn't sound very seeker friendly, right? So if you're coming to the temple to encounter God, it's okay if you want to encounter God. If you're a Gentile, just stay outside because we don't want you inside. You don't get to come into the holy place where you can encounter God. See, the court of the Gentiles, that's where Jesus did most of his teaching because that's where the common folk went. But this inner sanctuary has got this no trespassing sign, no Gentile to defile our temple on pain of death. There's been two of them that have been actually excavated. That's what one of the ones that you see on the screen was. In other words, we don't call 911, right? We come out with guns blazing. 
That's the reaction against Paul that you see in verse 30. So go with me to verse 30. Then all the city was provoked, and the people rushed together, and taking hold of Paul, they dragged him out of the temple, and immediately the doors were shut. Luke makes it clear in verse 29, the charge is unfounded. There's absolutely no basis for it. He's not taking Trophimus into this area when he's trying to establish unity. It's the last thing that he would do. The paradox is this. He's in the temple for purification. It's the very thing they charge him with. You've defiled this place. Now, they've seen Paul with Trophimus in the city, so they're looking for something. How can we charge this guy and get him out once and for all? So they quickly jump to this conclusion. Is it an exaggeration on Dr. Lute's part to say the whole city is in an uproar? I mean, you're talking about hundreds of thousands of people in that city at that time. How can Dr. Luke say the whole city is in an uproar? Well, when you remember that the temple is the town square, the center of life of this entire community, it's where everybody wanted to be, it's where they went to buy and sell. That's why you find Jesus chasing money changers out of the temple. This is where life happens, and the uproar starts, and people begin running in from every direction, and Paul is dragged out of the temple proper, into the court of Gentiles, and the enormous gates of the temple slam shut. The purpose in that is to keep Paul from perchance crawling back inside the protection of the temple and claiming sanctuary. They don't want this guy that they're gonna kill to crawl back inside the gates. This is the last time you ever see the temple written of in the book of Acts. They closed the door, symbolically closing the door to God's purposes, shutting themselves off completely from God's messenger. How powerful that Luke included that. Let's finish the story, the last couple verses, verse 31. While they were seeking to kill him, a report came to the commander of the Roman cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. At once he took along some soldiers and centurions and they ran down to them. And when they saw the commander of the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. On the northwest corner of the walls that you looked at on the image, you would have seen some very tall towers. It's called the Fortress of Antonio. The fortress was built by Herod the Great. King Herod the Great built it as a defense mechanism against the enemies of Israel. The Romans moved in and they took over the fortress. They used it as a barracks. They they put a garrison of soldiers within the fortress of Antonio. And so stationed in the high towers of the fortress of Antonio, which were about 100 feet up, a soldier easily looks down into the court of the Gentiles and sees this massive group of people wailing on one man, beating him. So immediately he sends message to Claudius Lysicus. Claudius is in charge, you'll see him in chapter 23, over the entire city of Jerusalem. When the procurator is not present, Claudius Lysicus has responsibility for one thing, keeping peace in the city. It's his major role. So he's a high-ranking officer, And he has under him an entire cohort, a a legion of Roman military men, 240, 260 cavalrymen, meaning mounted on horses, 700 and something infantry soldiers, 
And we see that he takes centurions with him into this setting. Why? Because Jerusalem is boiling over. So Lysias Claudius takes a contingent of soldiers. He takes multiple centurions, meaning they've got hundreds of men under them. This is a huge show of force. And when the crowd sees them show up, they back off. And they stop beating Paul. This man who is wearing humility so well is now bloody and bruised and just battered for the name of Jesus. He hadn't done anything wrong. They've just called him out. He's wearing the attitude of Christ Jesus and the soldiers show up and they put him in chains. If you read verse 33, we're not going there today. You'll see that they chain him in two ways, it says. Two chains, meaning he's chained to a soldier on his left and a soldier on his right with his hands bound and his ankles bound, fulfilling the prophecy of Agabus. Exactly what God said, this is what's gonna happen to you, Paul. And from this moment on, Paul is in chains, a prisoner to the very last word of the book of Acts. From here, I need to take you back to Philippians chapter two. When we think of this man who's wearing Christ so well and ask ourselves, how do you do that? How do you have that degree of courage? How do you look like Jesus in that setting when you've done nothing wrong? So let's go back to the anchor verse. Look with me at Philippians 2. This starts in verse 3 this time. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interest of others. Have this attitude in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. That skewered me this week because my mind is still stuck back on verse 13 where we were at last week. If you were here, we talked about the prophecy of Agabus. Agabus shows up and says, Paul, they're gonna bind you and you'll become a prisoner. Do you remember what happened in response to that prophecy? Paul's friends began begging him, Paul, don't go. Paul had this response in verse 13. Look with me again at it. Acts 21, 13, then Paul answered, what are you doing weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be bound, but even to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. You might look at Paul and think, what amazing courage. How do I get to that place where I not only wear humility, but I have such courage? He seems to have no fear whatsoever. Courage, church, is not the absence of fear. Courage is the recognition that there's something greater than the fear. There's something more important. What did Paul know that Scripture speaks to that allowed him to say, I'm not only willing to go into chains, I'm willing to die for Jesus. What did Paul know? He knew the rest of Philippians 2. Look at what we understand about the mind of Jesus. Verse 8. Let's finish it. 
Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Amen and amen and amen and amen. When you say amen, you know, you're just saying it's true. It's true, it's true, it's true, it's true. That's what Paul understood. I'm willing to die for the name of Jesus. That's where courage comes from. That's where conviction comes from. That's where humility comes from. Recognizing we serve the one that is the name above every names. The one to him every knee will bow one day. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. How cool is that? What a great passage of scripture. They're all great, I know, but I'm kind of stuck on this one right now. Let me pray for us this way, that God would show us a greater degree of humility. Would you join me in that? Father, it is our heart's passion, and we'll just straight up declare it. When in these settings, we willingly say, I I would embrace that, I want that. I wanna set my affections on the mind of Jesus, but it's so hard come eight o'clock Monday morning. So I pray for the extra measure of the presence of your Holy Spirit this week to go before us. In the times when we feel or tempted to be proud and boastful, that you remind us of who we are in Jesus and that we would set our affections on him, that we would savor this, this element of humility that you ask us to put on like a mantle, that we would wear it well. And Father, that you would use the sweet aroma of that, that humility, that that fragrance would be attractive and would draw people into relationship with you. That, that'd be a great purpose, Father, for wearing humility. So we don't ask for humility just for the sake of humility. We ask for it to advance the name of Jesus Christ, our King, in whose mighty name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. Have a great week, New Hope.